You're listening to the Silver Screen Happy Hour. I'm Chris Wiegan, along with my brother Jerome. This is our Veterans Day episode entitled All Quiet on the Thin Red Line. We do want to raise our glasses to all the veterans who've served our country past and present, which includes my son and daughter-in-law who served in the Army and my son is currently serving in the Michigan National Guard. That also includes both of our grandfathers that served during World War II, one in the European theater and one in the Pacific, as well as our father that served in the Navy. Well, if you're not behind the wheel, go ahead and pour yourself a cold one and I'll get the film reel going so we can listen to the show. What movies are we going to be talking about today? Okay, so we picked a couple of classic war films. Well, a a classic. One's a new classic. One's a a remake of several remakes. Um, What I like to playfully call the war version of A Star is Born. It's the All Quiet on the Western Front, which has been remade four times. Is this the fourth one or the third one? It's three times theatrical, and then there was one, I think, made-for-TV movie that they did a long time ago. But it's one of those, like A Star is Born, that gets remade about every 30 years or so. And the other one we paired it with, and I am a genius for picking this film to pair it with because, as I'm going to illustrate, how similar they really are. And for anyone out there that would like one and not the other, yeah, there but one is com- far superior to the other. Um, uh, again, I, I, I disagree with you highly. But <laughs> the other film is the 1998 The Thin Red Line, directed by Terrence Malick whose only real fault in life is that it came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan. And that will be, seriously, that's going to be a running theme on today's show because we really could talk about all three of them because the the, the similarities between All Quiet on the Western Front and The Thin Red Line are unmistakable. And how much they are different from a movie like Saving Private Ryan. So we actually will be talking about Saving Private Ryan, or at least I will, several times throughout today's show. Yeah. But to start things off, I have picked an Irish whiskey Okay. called Proper 12. And I think I've drank this on a previous podcast, but the significance of this is that it is Conor McGregor's whiskey like he's oh. like the yeah. you know he, it's his it, yeah it's his yeah so obviously what is conor mcgregor he's a fighter he's a and fighter. we're doing we're doing two war movies <laughs> right so we're war <laughs> right so we're doing two fighter movies and i picked a fighter i'm impressed, one. I'm so impressed you didn't go with a light a bud light hey, oh no i have <laughs> oh, but you i do have backup. I, I do have my beer backup as usual but okay all right are you ready listen yeah, let's do the pour okay Did you pick that up? Oh, yeah. Nice. Sounds tasty. Oh, it is. I like me some Irish whiskey. What are you going with today? A German-style Pilsner. Nice. Right? And it's made by War Pigs Brewing. Oh, how perfect is that? I know. And the name of the beer is called A Light in the Black, which I think is brilliant for the stuff we're going to be talking about today well and the funny thing is is i actually tried to find like a german whiskey or a german alcohol to for today because of all quiet on the western front yeah and i couldn't really find one i mean they're out there but like you know i was pressed for time so i 
you know, and I wasn't at a Bevmo or a Total Wine and Spirits where I could like peruse. Yeah, I had to I had to act quickly, and then. I saw, well, if I can't go there, what if I go Thin Red Line? And I thought, well, I, I, I do have a Suntory Times right here in front of me. And I thought that was more of a shout out to the movie Lost in Translation. So I decided against doing the, the, the Japanese liquor. And I just went with the old Conor McGregor because he's a fighter. Yeah, well done. So let me, before I crack the can, these are canned. It says, a storm of light breaks the spell of darkness. I know what I must do. The light guides my hand onward. You know, that sounds a lot like <laughs> Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens. I know what I must do. I just hope I have the strength to do it. <laughs> All right, here we go. <coughs> Jesus. Did you get that? Oh, shit. That, that... <laughs> That was a Oops. beautiful <laughs> first that time was... ever on this podcast. <laughs> condom broke. The condom broke on that one. <laughs> hey, it's good theatrical entertainment here for the God, audience. Our poor I just listeners. spilled beer all over me. Our poor listeners. I feel bad for them. So while you're cleaning up your mess, it is also duly noted another film we could have paired with All Quiet on the Western Front, which is actually way more similar to All Quiet on the Western Front than at The Thin Red Line. And it was 1917, right? The movie that just was up for Best Picture, what, two years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very similar because both really track sort yeah. of like the walking journey of a soldier, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front, they actually say at the end when they talk about like kind of like a the epilogue, Yeah. they mention how this whole battle was only over like a couple of football fields that's it like yeah it, just kept, it was it back just... and forth for like how long where it was just a few <laughs> a couple hundred yards in either direction you know yeah and, and it went on thousands for years. of men died over that yep and 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 it lasted just a, you know a few or i don't want to say just it lasted several years yeah uh i finally cleaned up my mess i gotta pour my beer good embarrassment Dude, this Embarrassing. Is a beautiful looking beer. Okay. We're going to start with All Quiet on the Western Front. So, for anyone that hasn't said, now we battled on this one because we don't talk about endings. But as you remember, I texted you a few days ago, we're going to have to talk about endings. Yeah, well. Because both of these films have a very similar type of ending when it comes to the hero. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be upset if you tell people that someone dies. Well, not <laughs> in only a that. World War One film. <laughs> not only that. Yeah, it's like saying Titanic. The ship sank. What the fuck? <laughs> but so no. But particularly, the Thin Red Line came out in '98. So you know, you had your chance. Number one yeah. on that one. And then All Quiet on the Western Front's been remade so many times. If you haven't seen any of the versions yet, can't help you there Tough either. Tough luck. So the main character of Paul Balmer. Private Bomber in All Quiet on the Western Front, which, by the way, can we just say that the actor, Holy his crap. first first film he's ever done. Right. And as of right now, his only film he's ever done. Uh, not for long. Not for long, but amazing. Absolutely amazing. He what, was fantastic. And did, hold on. Let's ask this question right now. Did you watch it? In, you didn't watch it in German. I know from your response to my text. <laughs> because you can watch it in the original language with subtitle English subtitles, or you didn't. So with you well, had dubbed it, English, it wouldn't really matter too much. And let me explain why. 
everything I watch has to have English subtitles because when the <laughs> girls go to sleep, for anyone listening, I have a seven-year-old and a five, or a, a seven and a five and a half-year-old. So when they go to bed at eight thirty, which is when I usually sit down to do this stuff, I have to turn the volume down anyway, <laughs> or else the wife will come out and scream at me. It's too loud. Yeah. And we're watching war movies, so I have to really turn yeah. the volume down. Which, but again, as we've talked on previous podcasts about Hitchcock movies, right? When you turn the volume down, you can still tell everything that's going oh, on. Oh, yeah. This is one so, of those films. This is one of those films. Actually, so is A Thin Red Line. I can still... I still had the, some of the volume up. I still could hear them. You know what I mean? I don't want to say I turned it all the way down. But pretty much everything I watch after 8.30, I have <laughs> subtitles on anyway, so I don't miss anything. But I have to say that, the the again, the cinematography... I did have the sound up enough to well, actually I have to I have to clarify. This was the second time I watched it for this oh, podcast. Okay. I saw it about a month and a half ago when the Oscar nominations came out. Yeah. About two months ago. I saw it in December because, when it first came out. Yeah, because it was nominated, so I wanted to watch it. And then I watched it V and I watched it together and we had full volume on. So I did I did get the full effect. Wow. I couldn't watch that one with Jesse. She she doesn't like war movies in general. And that, See, v- this one I feel I felt like I mean let me just throw my two cents in here about like overall I uh-huh. felt like this this movie captured the horrors of war like I I just thought better than almost any other movie I've seen because um, there's I mean there's so many different parts and the way it contrasted or contrasted contrasted like beauty and horror with the cinematography and and the joy on the young men's faces in one scene, and then thirty seconds later, it's horror. And, um, and we're gonna we're gonna get a similar tie into that on the next movie as yeah. well. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if you caught it. If you caught it on the next movie too, but in this one, yes, absolutely. And it's also interesting to note the film's opening shot and its closing shot are the exact same shot. I don't think I caught and, that. And what's cool about that is almost like saying, you know, because then, you know, they go into the epilogue about how it's this is really just over a couple hundred yards right. uh, of distance. I think what the filmmakers are showing with that, because generally in in screenwriting, generally you start your opening shot and your closing shot are the exact opposite. Right. Mm-hmm. If your opening shot is the desert often your ending shot will be the ocean. You know, mm-hmm. so just, that's just a very broad example. Uh, just showing that, you know, that growth has happened, mm-hmm. right? That there was a journey and your closing shot is completely opposite of your opening shot. Oh, what was it? There was another movie I was watching recently and I was like, oh shit, that's so cool. The oh, the movie opened with planes taking off and it l- ended with planes landing. <laughs> so it was like, okay, so, you know, these are all symbolism shots, right? To use the same shot for both indicates that people died and not much has changed. Right. Right? Like, how what, how what a sad thought that is. You know what I mean? Like, men, th- uh, 17, 18, 19-year-old men died by the thousands and nothing was accomplished. Yeah. I mean, millions right? if you add everybody up. Yeah, but I mean, just this part yeah, of just, the Western right, Front right. dealing with the French, a couple hundred yards of, of space thousands have died and we are no further along than we were at the beginning and that's a sad that's really a sad yeah. take on it so i wrote that down as as a as a notation i i think and it's it really starts off disturbing as well and i kind of love how they I, I don't love it but i loved it in a disturbing way they start off 
by showing a, a private right off the bat and you think, oh, this is this the lead? We're with him for about 30 seconds and then he dies <laughs> rather quickly. And you're like, nope, that wasn't the main character, apparently. And But the point is why they set that up. I think his name was Heinrich. And they even made a point to say, Heinrich, Heinrich, Heinrich over here. So you're like, okay, Heinrich, this is the guy we're going to follow today. <laughs> nope, he dies, like, relatively quickly. And the reason they did that is because they wanted to show what they do with their clothes, right? They take the clothes off the bodies of these dead soldiers. Right. And then they ship them back. They wash them. They get all the blood out of them. And then they stitch up the bullet holes. And then they give them back to the next soldier. Yep, sew it back up and get it back out there. Right. And then and then the main character, Paul Balmer, comes in and he gets his clothes and he goes, oh, these must belong to somebody else. His name's Heinrich is on here. And the guy said, oh, no, they must have been too small. And he tears the name tag off. Right. And then they show him drop it on the floor where all the other name tags are. <laughs> that was a great right? sex. That was and a great sequence. It was brilliant. Whole, yes. The whole beginning is great. Now, I, I have to say as well. These films and how they're different from movies like Saving Private Ryan from a screenwriting standpoint, we always talk about script structure. Mm -hmm. They don't follow generally the same sort of beats, right? As they would a, a, a clear three-act structure with turning points and plot points and character development and all this. You see that a lot in movies that have more of a linear storyline like a Saving Private Ryan, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And... and both the films that we're talking about today are way more abstract. And I wrote that word down because both of these films are like an abstract painting, right? Sure. You take you take what you get out of it. It's an it's more art than it is storytelling. It's it's art. Yeah. And and I love movies like this and the the thin red line because they're artistic. They're 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 works of art. They look like paintings almost. And both films wonderful scores and the music plays a key part in both films I, I will i will say really quick here my boys hated the da, da, da. i loved it <laughs> loved it i loved it it was like it. and they did it throughout the entire movie v and, hated it too and my wife hated it too <laughs> jonah i think my son he said when i told him they won that academy award right for yeah what was it best score or yes, sound. Uh, anyways. No, well, they won. I think they won the sound one too. I can't remember. I have to look it up. So he he's like, really? For der, der, der. <laughs> he was criticizing it because <laughs> it's stuck in his head. But, right, but that that was the whole point, right? Yeah, that like, yeah. I mean, haunting. It was haunting. Foreboding. It, it is. And when we talk about the thin red line, you'll hear it's almost the exact opposite. The music was played perfectly, but it was almost very sad. Yeah. It was like. A real downer, you yeah. know what I mean? Now, it also had haunting music like that during the battle scenes. We'll talk about that when we get to the next movie. But both uh, films used sound and music uh, beautifully to their advantage. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front won four Academy Awards. Of course, Best International Feature, which is what they call now the best foreign film. Sure. Best Original Score. Best Achievement in Cinematography. And, and Best Achievement in Production Design. Nominated, I want to say, for seven or eight total. One, two, three, four, yeah. five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine uh, nominations at one, four. Yeah, it was worthy, man. I, the, the cinematography, I mean, the shots, 
the, the beautiful scenery in some of the shots. And then some of the other shots, it, it captures just the hellscape of what it, what it became. Yes. You know what I mean? And it was, it was chilling and because of the contrast, too. Because you could do a whole World War movie and it's just all hellscape. You know what I mean? Yeah. And but because they had that that contrast, it was it was it was moving. It was so well, moving. And, and another thing that both of these films that we're going to talk about today had that, like, say, a movie like Saving Private Ryan doesn't have as much genuine fear mm. mm-hmm. and sort of that. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's the the the. Remember, we always talk about the emotional tug of war. Some scenes. You mentioned it already. A lot of times in in All Quiet on the Western Front, there were moments of happiness, mm. right? Like they were like, this is cool. We're going off to war, right? Things are good. And then the next scene, one dude's shoving another dude's face into the mud. And you're like, ah, he's going to die. You know what I mean? And right. they think, I'm going to die. How many times did Bomber, we're going to get to this too as far as the theme, Bomber watched his friends die. He watched one of his friends get set on fire. Yeah, that was With rough. a flamethrower. So, and oh, so I'm getting ahead of myself. So about... We talked about script structure and how these films, but if you look closely enough, it's still there. Is yeah, what I was going to get. I was at. I, I was wrestling with that too because, like in All Quiet on the Western Front, I was like, "What?" So the what's the guy's what's the guy's name that's the lead? Bomber. Bomber. Private um, Bomber. Yeah. So like I'm so I'm asking myself, so what's what's his, you know, what's he going to learn in this journey? And basically, what I came up with is he learned like he had a romanticism about war and mm-hmm. that was he learned <laughs> he learned real he, quick he found out <laughs> yeah was that fuck around and find out yeah <laughs> fuck around and he found out <laughs> there's no romance man it was just but, oh well along with that i i notated eight minutes in now we always talk about how usually the theme is said to the main character he's usually not the one saying it but in this case I actually had a line that he said I wrote down eight minutes in. He says to his friends, because he has to forge the signature of his parents to go off to battle, probably because he's only 17, right? right? Or whatever. 16 or 17, yeah. Yeah. And he said, I'm not going to be left behind, or I'm not going to be left behind here. And at the time, I didn't think much of it the first time I saw it. But when I was watching it again for this podcast, I wrote that down because it occurred to me that one by one, everybody he knows dies mm-hmm. and gets left behind right mm. and he seems to survive every scene right mm-hmm. everything that goes on he seems to make it through you know i would say that the first turning point would probably be when he gets his first realization that this isn't fun mm. because the whole first half or the first i always say that first half the whole first act they're looking forward to this. You know what I mean? They're like they're like Tom Cruise in Born on the Fourth of July. They're gung-ho, right? They're like, yeah, let's go up. It's going to be like summer camp. Let's go and have fun. Right. You know, we're going to war. This is going to be great. They're all excited. And then the first moment that he realizes he made a big mistake was the gas mask scene, right? right. Where that the guy rough. bitches him out because he's putting it on wrong or he tells everybody to about face and he's facing the other way so he's like it's almost like the freshman that joined the football practice and he's doing everything wrong and everybody wants to beat him up for it it's like at that moment he's like fuck did i make a mistake like maybe maybe i shouldn't be here and that's where it, it really takes a jump into the second act and i mean the rest of the first half of the film 
is met with that, like you said, one moment they're happy. They're stealing chickens, right? And right. they're all around cooking up the a chicken. Goose. Everything's great. Right, goose. And then and then <laughs> Big and he's ma- and he's making new friends and and one, but one by one shit happens and people are dying. I want to say I, I the midpoint scene as far as timing it's real interesting because we always talk about like something good happens at the midpoint scene, but then immediately turns to shit. Mm-hmm. This is immediate. At the midpoint scene, they take the French bunker. And it seems like, fuck, this is a huge part of this war, right? We just we just captured the French bunker. Right. Everything's going to be a victory. Then they look up and all the fucking tanks are coming. And they're like, <laughs> shit! <laughs> they all get down. The fucking tanks are going into the bunker uh, and crushing people and oh, running over yeah. people. And it's like, that turned bad real quick. <laughs> like, that, fucking, that went from <laughs> that went from false victory to the bad guys closing in in like a fucking second yeah like they wasted no time <laughs> yeah that yeah, was they, crazy they, yeah so and then the so then the second half of the second act you know after the midpoint where we always say bad things start to happen you start to get a lot of cutaways of the government trying to haggle about ending the war right and then meanwhile though these guys are still out there fighting yeah and he's losing friends. His one friend kills himself. He asks for cutlery. Yeah, that was And rough. they bring it to him, and he jams it into his own throat because he refuses to go home a cripple. I mean, they, these scenes are so hard to watch, yeah. man. And you're just yep. like, man. And you know it's just taking a toll on Balmer, right? There's a scene where he's talking to Cat. I can't remember the guy's name is like Kataslovsky or something, but they call him Cat. Mm-hmm. He he's just, ends up being the one friend that lasts the longest. Oh right? yeah, yeah. And and he and. And he asked him why why he joined the army. And he said, I wanted to prove to my mom I could do it. Hmm. And, and I remember thinking how, how much that ties into Private Wit from The Thin Red Line about his his voiceovers in the beginning of that film about his mother dying, right? And we'll, we'll get to that about the tie-in there. But I just I thought it was interesting how both characters, how their mother was a driving factor in them proving themselves. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, you get to the point where where Cat dies. And, you know, uh, again, not to ruin much of the ending, but they're practically out of it. Right. Because the war is over or or it's going to be over. It's already been announced. They're just waiting for the clock to strike. Right. No, this. But that's that's even later. That's worse. Cat dies when they're out of harm's way. Oh, they're they're back. They're back in the village area and they go to steal another fucking goose. Yeah. And yeah. this time it goes bad. Yep. And 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 another. This is a tie-in. Another tie-in to Saving Private Ryan. This really could have been a three-movie talk today. <laughs> another tie-in to Saving Private Ryan. When Cat, they get Cat to the. He finally carries him. Right. Carries him all the way to the medic, and the the guy says, "You you shouldn't have wasted your time. He's dead." Right. And he goes, "What do you mean? I was just talking to him a minute ago." He says, "No. You see that? It's black blood. He got he got shot in the liver. So for for you know." I'm not a scientist or a biologist, but I know enough. I've seen enough war movies to tell you that if you get shot in the liver, you're fucked because the <laughs> liver is what cleanses your body of toxins. So it's really just a big bag of poison. That's all your liver really is. And if you get shot in it, it all spills into your bloodstream, right? So what's the tie in the Saving Private Ryan? Do you remember when Giovanni Ribisi, I believe, was the actor that played Wade? Harlan mm-hmm. Wade, the doctor, mm-hmm. right? He gets shot. 
And as he's laying there, they're all standing around him. And they're all like, tell us how to fix you. Tell us how to fix you. And he's like, okay, reach behind me. How big is the exit hole? You know what I mean? And Tom Hanks is like, oh, it's about the size of an acorn. And he goes, here, put my hand on it. And he puts his hand on it. And right away, Wade goes, oh, my God, my liver. Like, he knows. He knows at that point. And I never realized how haunting that scene was for until the, I watched this the, movie. Yeah, for the doctor, because he knew. Right, because the doctor knew the second he realized he took that shot in the liver, he's fucked. Yeah. And wow. if you go back and watch Saving Private Ryan again now, knowing yeah. that, like the way this ties in, <laughs> it's even sadder. It's just more heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Cat was his last friend, and, of course, he was left behind because right. he died there. Um, I think, the, to me, the turning point that sends it into Act 3 is what you mentioned. They decide the war is over, and they're going to announce at 11 a.m. tomorrow... Ceasefire. Yep. So what does the asshole general guy do? Oh, no, we're going to have one last battle to stick it to the French. Yeah. Trying to take one last piece of ground. Right. And all the soldiers are like, are you fucking nuts, man? The war is over. Like tomorrow at 11 a.m. It's over. Why are we doing this? No, at dawn, we're going to go attack. What? And you can see it on their faces, particularly Private Bomber. He's like, this is bad. This is bad because I know what's going to happen. You heard someone yell out, I'm not going. And they started beating him up. I think they even shot him because I heard a a gunshot go off after he started yelling that he wasn't going to go. Right. And it's so heartbreaking. But eventually, so, so of course, as, as you can guess what happens, Private Bomber takes a bayonet in the chest. Hauntingly, it ends. Actually, in the back. Well, yeah, but it goes through it goes his chest. Through him, yeah, yeah, it goes through his whole friggin' body, and 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 it, there were minutes away, right? There were minutes away when that oh, happened. Oh, not even. I think right after he got stabbed, you hear the whistles blowing. Yeah, ceasefire, ceasefire, yeah. Yeah. ceasefire. I mean, and as he was dying, he wasn't yeah. even dead yet when they when they announced <laughs> the ceasefire. So terrible. Yeah. And then, of course, the final, before they get to the final closing shot, one of the final sequences is the guy that has to go and collect the dog tags, yep. right? Yep. And they go, and they get to him, and that's when you realize he's dead. And it has almost like, I, I wrote down in my, my notes, an Inception type of ending. Yeah. Because if you, you know, the ending of Inception with the top is spinning, yeah. and you don't know, you don't know if it's going to fall over, right? <laughs> to depict if he's sleep or if he's in a dream or not, or if it's reality. The, they held that camera on his face so long, I kept thinking his eyes are going to open. His eyes are going to open. He's not dead yet. He's not dead. He can't be dead. He's not dead yet. And he doesn't. It actually, <laughs> you know what? They, when they did that, it made me think, I think they played some kind of camera magic. Because there's other things in that in that frame, in that, in that scene that you could see moving. Snowfall. Yeah, snowfall. So I, 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 yeah. I, I thought I'm like, okay, thing. this isn't a still picture, but this man is not moving at all. Right. And I'm like, how'd they do that? Because even for someone acting, you still got to breathe. Yeah. So they must have, oops, I bumped my mic. They must have done, I think they done something where they froze it just on him, cut him out, photoshopped him into this scene or something. It's but it quite was, possible. It was seamless, though. It was beautiful. I mean, yeah. it, was horrib- it was horrible, but... It was masterfully done, however they did it, because yeah. you actually thought you were looking at a dead corpse. You know what yeah. I mean? But but I kept thinking, his eyes are going to open. His eyes are going to open. Because they held that shot long enough, and I'm like, come on, man. He's not dead yet. Come on, man. Give me something. Give yeah. me something. Give me a little sign of life, and it just fucking fades out. That's not how that like, war went, brother. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So 
we already talked about okay so so some quick recaps what affected you the most you know I think especially watching it the second time I was reflecting a lot more about war than I did the first time so what affected me the most was just the I guess the overarching uh, story of basically humans at war and and we're not we're still in that story <laughs> and right. and and I I kept thinking about like what the hell are we doing here with Ukraine because I don't know how we're going to get out of this one you know what I mean we're keep feeding yeah. feeding arms to a country that's that's fighting with a nuclear power if they start to lose things are going to get really ugly if if Russia starts to lose which yeah. they have. They've lost a lot of battles and they're just sent they're just throwing more bodies at it right now. But it made me really pause like watching this going this was a feudal war and and you know, not a lot was accomplished and basically it set the world up for a world war two because they you know, basically Germany got screwed and you know anyways, I think that the rest I think is that, history, but I think the difference of what we go through now is back then, though I wasn't alive, but just from what I've read and what I've seen, dictators back then really wanted to rule the world. I think dictators today, it's all about money. We make so much money on war, and we send disposable humans to die just to continue making money. Nod to Metallica. Disposable you, heroes. Right, right. And, and, I mean, you could talk about... You know, how many times have we been in wars that seemed futile? Yeah. But but we make money on war. War is very profitable. And and we learned that because of the Second World War, right? That was an economic boom for us. Well, yeah, we learned that. And that's what concerns me because we're just sending billions of dollars over right now to feed the war machine. And is anyone actually talking about this? You know what I mean? This is not something that is even talked about at work with you know people we're not even discussing it and so you know we usually because, it, we because usually, it's not our soldiers dying well yeah 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 yet. exactly so anyways but i don't want to get too dark but we are talking about world <laughs> we are, wars here we are talking about too that's why when you text me and you were like yeah i get it war is bad i'm like you fucking idiot every movie has that same theory right every movie has the well, same message i was ticked because i felt like so we're gonna get into this we're gonna get into this in this next movie yes but here i we go. felt we're, like <laughs> thin red line was preachy i saw i just felt like it was preachy Ooh. the way they I did it see- I, I didn't just, see that at I all. So, anyways, do you want to? We can conclude, move on if you'd like. All right. Well, with... like I said, we uh, there's so many similarities that we can bounce back and forth yeah. as we go. So, moving to the thin red line. First of all, do you know the significance of the title? No, I don't. Okay. So, the thin red line is a metaphor. I want to say for the British Army. When they were fighting the Russian Empire, I want to say, again, I just uh, briefly looked up. I want to say it was the 1850s. Hmm. And so what happened was is, uh, oh, fuck. I'm a, there's, there's historians that are probably screaming right now because they know it was the Crimean War, I think. But anyway, so they were, they were in this area, the British Army, right? And the Russian Empire is coming. And they're far outmatched. 
the Russians are are I'm sorry, the British are outmatched. The mm-hmm. Russians have a vastly larger army, right? It's like twenty five thousand, like four thousand, some some crazy bullshit like that. And the British are like, what the fuck are we gonna do? We're screwed. So what they did is they all lined up across the border, too deep. That's it, just two people deep. But by doing it that way, they stretched all the way down so that when the Russians started to come over the hill and saw them, they were like, fuck, and they turned around (laughs) and they went back. (laughs) So they called it the thin red line because they were wearing, you know, their uniforms. So it became a metaphor for being outmatched, right? It became a metaphor for you are uh, against superior numbers. And that's what the Americans are uh, in the Battle of Guadalcanal, right? Sure, yeah. they, They land there. And I can't remember if it was before or after the Battle of Wake Island. Anybody that knows, the Battle of Wake Island was a disaster. All the Marines died. It was not a very good battle for us. That was one island we tried to take during World War II in the Pacific. Got our asses kicked. Hey, we had. Yeah. Be- before you continue with that thought, I'm going to make some noise because I have to unwrap my next beer. I couldn't find a cooler, so I got this little little ice pack. <laughs> look this, at this is my brother, folks. Look, look, he look. can't. He can't find a cooler. Look at that. I made, so a, he had, I made a beer burrito with an ice pack. His beer was injured, so he wrapped an ice pack around it so it wouldn't so the swelling would go down. God damn it. Alright, so anyway. All right, sorry. I was in the middle of an important thought. But anyway. Oh wait. Oh, I'll stop for that. Oh yeah, that's good. So, <laughs> so James Jones wrote the book in 1962. It's a semi-autobiographical. Now, what's interesting also to note is that James Jones also wrote the book of which the film From Here to Eternity is based on. And The Thin Red Line was supposed to be a direct sequel to From Here to Eternity. That was his plan. Hmm. And then he, re- he realized that he killed off all his major characters at the end of From Here to Eternity, <laughs> so he couldn't carry any of them over, so he had to create new characters. Again, autobiographical on his own experiences in World War II. So he wrote this book, and he used that title because, again, the Americans that land, the, the soldiers that landed on Guadalcanal, it now became Central Island because there was an airstrip there. And the Japs were going, the Japanese were going to use the island as like a way station. Like they could get to the mainland, our mainland, and attack us easier if they had a a stopping point, right? Like you can't, it's hard to fly jet planes from from Japan to the United States. They needed an island in the middle to, to, to land on, to fuel up, gear up, weapon up, and go. It was essential to take this island. Unfortunately, it was heavily covered by the Japanese. So we were outmatched. We were against greater numbers. So that's Mm -hmm. why he used the title for the book. And, of course, Terrence Malick adapted the screenplay and used the title again as as the film. Now, I wrote down a couple other notes only because you pissed me off with how much you said you didn't like it. So <laughs> this film, the film cost 52 million to make, which by today's numbers is 96 million, which is standard for today's film. That's cuz right? they had every freaking name in Hollywood in this freaking film, man. Well, and it was here's so the, unnecessary. I, here here's the funny part. Oh my gosh. He had to do that. 
Come on. He had no intention. He had no intention of doing that. But the studio said we need big names. Do you know all the names that read for those parts and didn't get it? <laughs> Did he need that many big names? I mean, so for crying out loud. And it made ninety eight million in nineteen ninety eight, which today is the equivalent of one hundred and eighty one million. Okay. So a pretty successful film. Scorsese called it his second favorite film of the nineties. Gene Siskel called it the greatest contemporary war film I've ever seen. That's a quote from Gene Siskel. Yeah, but now, wasn't it Gene Siskel that didn't like Die Hard? No, that was, that was Roger Ebert. Oh. That was Roger And I tell that to people all the time. I always say, hey, whenever somebody makes a mistake, I always say, don't feel bad. Roger Ebert in 1988 gave yeah. Die Hard a thumbs down. That's... I tell that to people all the time. <laughs> but, Gene but... Siskel could make mistakes too, so... But but you, to your point, you would agree with Ebert on this. Ebert, on the other hand, liked it, but he said he felt like it was unfinished. But that's abstract art to me. You know what I mean? That it, yeah. it, that it takes a lot of inter- – it didn't have a linear storyline. Again, the biggest problem with The Thin Red Line is it came out in the wrong year, right? Because Saving Private Ryan won the Oscars that it normally would have won. It won the sound and music and sound effects and all that shit. If, if The Thin Red Line came out just one year later – and was matched up against American Beauty, I think it wins all these Oscars. Oh, yeah, probably. But but it came out in a rough year because everybody loved Spielberg that year, and everybody oh, loved yeah. Saving Private Ryan, right? What about Huge 97? Film. What came out in 97? Titanic. Nothing was beaten Titanic oh, that year. yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, so again, so uh, a couple of notes also I wrote down, that the imagery, right? So what I noticed was where most war films would depict body parts, like Saving Private Ryan, body parts flying off, people covered in blood. The thin red line would cut to like animals and showing how a bird was affected by the bombing. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There was that shot of the bird that yeah. had its wing broken and its feathers were all burnt. Oh, yeah. Like instead, that's Terrence Malick's way of saying we are destructive to the environment. Yeah, which it's is interesting not- in the, be- in the one, I think it was the first scene in All Quiet on the Western Front. It was a bunch. It was a bunch of foxes in a foxhole, a little yes. fox den. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you hear the bombs going off in the background, and they're like shaking and stuff. And I was like, "Oh, that's that's pretty brilliant." <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. And again, we talked about score. Hans Zimmer did the score for this film. I love Hans Zimmer, by the way. Hans Zimmer has done a million. Just IMDb Hans Zimmer, and you yeah, see a never million heard of films. Him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You're joking, right? You are joking. Okay. Uh, Most notably, for those of the younger crowd out there, he won an Oscar for doing the score for The Lion King. So there you go. But anyway, a lot of emotional imagery. I wrote that down. Even in flashback shots, there's a lot of flashback shots in The Thin Red Line, and they're all emotion-driven, heart-driven, love-driven, to contrast what the soldiers are going through in current present day, right? Like. I felt like it started off so slow. As and, and true, and like to your point though, it, comparing it to Private Ryan, that did not start off slow. Right, that's the right. <laughs> it grabbed you in the first ten minutes of the movie, and you were hooked. Yes. And this yes. one, man, you're fighting to stay awake. I mean, if you're if you're tired when you start Thin Red Line. You're going to be sleeping in 20 minutes. Well, and that was the thing. I, I remember texting you one night. And I, I've seen this movie a million times. I have it. I have it on DVD. 
so I went to watch it again for this podcast, but I had I I had to put the girls down myself, <laughs> which means that when when V goes to bed early and I have to put the girls down, I'll fall asleep in there, and I don't come out until like midnight. And then I went and I grabbed a drink, and I sit down. And I put the DVD in, and the first twenty minutes, I'm like, dude, I'm going to bed. <laughs> so by no knock of the film, it does start off slow. Don't watch it if you're already tired and drinking. That's a bad combination right there and I get like what you're saying it is art so but here's the thing though I mean Saving Private Ryan's art too of course well all film is art you know all film is art and so Mm -hmm. some art just is more engaging and more I don't know well (sighs) again I'll I'll tell you to to your point I'll help you out here (laughs) one of Roger Ebert's criticisms was he felt that the artisticness failed to connect with audiences, particularly in a year where Saving Private Ryan connected to audiences. Great. I'm, I'm agreeing with the guy that thought Die Hard sucked. Great. Right, right. <laughs> so, hey, man, you got to pick your battles. Pick your battle. Uh, so, and and let me just say, when Terrence Malick, he, he got the option to make this film 10 years earlier, every big name in Hollywood wanted to work with him. Some of them offered to do it for free. Good Lord. So, I mean, because he's he's got such a great history, he's such a fantastic filmmaker. But so it starts off with Private Wit, who is played by Jim Caviezel. Mm-hmm. Uh, for 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 those diehard Christian folks, you know who Jim Caviezel is. He's a big activist. He played Jesus in um, the, Jesus, the Passion. Passion of the Christ. The Passion. Passion. Yep. The Passion. I, I almost drew a blank there for a minute. <laughs> so another masterpiece, by the way. Which is which is so. It's it's interesting how the most honest and and sad and heartfelt scenes are with him and Sean Penn. Yeah. And in and in reality those two couldn't be any more different on the political spectrum. <laughs> Sean Penn and Jim Caviezel, right. but they have the best scenes together. Yeah. And I got to say though, as much as I poo-pooed on this movie, there were certain scenes that were just spectacular. I mean, the acting, the dialogue. I mean, there's so many like individual scenes I just I loved. But there were, I don't know, it, putting it all together, and I, I felt like, <laughs> I what did I say? I felt like it was kind of preachy, you know, kind of I don't know. I, an, but I in I an anti-war kind of kind of but way. But I I didn't get that because uh, the 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 anti-war sentiments I feel are in every war film. Yeah, war, war I know. Film. You know, like war, like it, the people like, you care about die. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you all, said. And, yeah, war, war sucks. War sucks, yeah. Great analogy, Chris. That's pretty much sums it up for every fucking war movie ever. But but Saving Private Ryan, 1917, The Thin Red Line, All Quiet on the Western Front, Hamburger Hill, Platoon, Born on Fourth of July. You go through these films, and the people that you get adapt, that you get closest to, they die, and they do that shit on purpose so that you can walk away going, war is bad. Like, right. how, many war, how many war movies really glorify war? Right. There are uh, Paths of Glory by Kubrick might be the only one. That might be the only one. And that's fucking Kirk Douglas in like 1960 or something. Right. Like most war films, I guess maybe Patton. You could argue, you could argue Patton <laughs> does too. But most war films post the Vietnam era, and I think that's important. Paths of Glory and Platoon are both, well, pl- pl- not Platoon, Patton. Patton, Paths of Glory was before Vietnam. Patton was in the middle of Vietnam. But any post Vietnam war film, 
are downers, man. Yeah. Even when they're even when they're not even about Vietnam, even when they're about World War II or World War One, they're downers, right? Well, the culture changed because I think during World War II, in you know the the propaganda that the War Department was putting out and everything, yeah. everyone was trying to put a happy face on it. Yep. And that's what the PR was all about, right? I mean, yes. So, but after, you know, Vietnam was on TV every night. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So, Absolutely. you couldn't hide it anymore. Talk about a downer. Born on the 4th of July is a fucking super downer. Yeah. Right? Especially when you see that the, the main character, Ron Kovic, was gung ho. He, he was a big pro war Marine. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then he comes back crippled and he becomes an anti-war activist. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like most movies have that post Vietnam movies anyway, regardless of what war they're depicting, have a lot of that anti-war sentiment that war is bad and they try to get you to to fall in love with characters and then they kill them off in front of you right right so so another thing that makes it very very similar to all quiet in the western front i said the main character of private balmer and the main character of private wit in the thin red line both of them when you said the theme generally isn't it's usually not the main character that says it it's something that's said to them I picked one where Private Bomber said it himself. I'm going to do the same thing here. Private Wit actually says in his voiceover in the beginning of the film, he was talking about his when his mother died, right? And he said, I hope I can meet my death with the same calm. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think that was a running theme throughout the film is they, of all the deaths we saw, we saw a lot of deaths in the Thin Red Line. There was this, we talk about emotional tug of war, right? Mm -hmm. The give and take. Half of them were met with cowardice, and the other half were met with bravery. Yeah. And it was sort of that push and pull, right? Like, one goes out really bad where they're screaming and crying, and then and other ones were met with, like, you know, like when Woody Harrelson accidentally pulls the pin out of his grenade. Right. And it's still in his belt. And he throws himself up against the embankment so not to kill everybody else. He right. just sacrifices himself. Yeah. And although he's terrified now because he blew his ass off, he knows <laughs> he's going to die... There's that calm that overcomes him. Uh, I mentioned another thing. He, uh, he even said that, though, and I kind of chuckled. I blew oh, yeah, my he's ass. Like, oh. He's like, damn it, I blew my ass off. And uh, so, it's um, like, oh, man, I should be <laughs> laughing. This is horrible. But but there's another a little point I wrote in that scene. The cinematography is so great in this film, too, because the cinematography alone, well, I want to say alone, Terrence Malick as the director as well, couldn't you just get the sense... They wanted you to know when it was hot, and they wanted you to know when it was cold. Mm. And the funny thing was, they're in Guadalcanal in the South Pacific, so it's hot all the time. They're like off the equator. But there are moments where you see the wind blowing the grass, mm -hmm. and in that Woody Harrelson scene, now he only said he was cold because all the oxygen's running out of his body, right? Because his ass is blown off. So he says, I'm cold, and they start to cover him up. But then, just the way it's shot, you feel that cold. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? You feel him getting cold. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so great the way it was shot. Yeah. Um, but so, so I wrote that down as part of like the, that back and forth, this cowardice and bravery. And then the relationships, some relationships are strained and some are strengthened kind of in that bravery, cowardice kind of way. So the ones that are strained would be Staros and, and tall, mm. right? Which is Elias Kateas as the captain. And then the was it is he a lieutenant colonel Nick Nolte's character the one in charge, they are going back and their relationship is strong at the beginning mm -hmm. and weakens as it goes on. 
Nick Nolte, man, what a what a character he played. <laughs> you know, you know what's funny? That was a huge year for him. He was the lieutenant colonel. He was nominated for Best Actor in that same year for a movie called Affliction, which I think is his best performance. We talked about Affliction on a previous podcast, the the Mosquito Coast, the Minari, the Minari Coast podcast we did. I mentioned Nick Nolte's character because it was a Paul Schrader script. But uh-huh. that came out the same year as this movie. So he had this movie and Affliction came out in the same year. It was a monster year for Nick Nolte. And yes, dude, is he not terrifying in this film? Like, he's just, he, <laughs> he just, but again, if you can write good motivation. Oh, yeah. You know, they send, they spend Holy the crap. whole, they, they spend parts of the first act on why he's this driven, right? John yeah. Travolta, John Travolta's character has one bit part. He's the, is like the admiral or something, right? He's his boss. Yeah. And he's telling him like, "Oh, you know, I envy you. This is great. These are, you know, this is great. You're going into battle." And he's thinking, "How many fucking times have I been passed over? Like, I have to make this work. Guadalcanal has to be a success." He knows that right off the bat. So, or else he's going to be embarrassed again and get passed over for promotion. Right. So when they're in these battles and Captain Staros is telling them, I don't want to send my men up this hill. We're getting killed. This is a suicide mission. He's like, God damn it, Staros. You need to get your ass up there. I'm not going to have you avoid a straight fight. You know, he's, and it's so it's like, God, what do you do in that situation when you're ordered? And one guy even tells him it's not your fault. He's ordering you to. You know what I mean? Like there's even a private there that's telling the captain, yeah. it's not your fault. We're willing to die. That's what we are. We're Marines or whatever. We're Army Rangers or whatever they were. He's like, we're we're willing to go. You're, he's yeah. ordering you to. It's not your fault. And he refuses. Well, and then he comes down, right? He comes yeah. down. He comes and, down to where they are and everything kind of settled yeah, down. And, right, he's right, like, oh, everything. hell. Right, good yeah. timing. And he's like, oh, doesn't seem so bad now, does it? And he's like, well, things have just gotten quiet just in the last few minutes. Mm-hmm. But but one of the relationships on the counteract of that one, that relationship gets strained over the film. One of the ones that's strengthened is Welsh and Wit, right? Sean Penn and Jim Caviezel, yeah. where they are at odds at the beginning. But as the film goes on, there's sort of like a bond and a respect that forms there. You know what I mean? Yeah. To and I thought I just thought it was so beautifully done the way those two sort of really. I mean, like you said, some of the scenes they had. Those are my favorite scenes. Are the scenes that Jim Caviezel has with Sean Penn? Those are the best scenes of the whole movie. Yeah. The, both the Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan have this concept of one man, but the difference between the two, and I wrote this down too in my notes. Saving Private Ryan dictates that one man is worth the mission. That one man is worth everything, right? If it's just one soldier you can save, that's enough. The Thin Red Line is the exact opposite. Sean Penn throughout the whole movie is like, what's one man in all this shit? We, we are nothing. We are nothing. We're disposable heroes, right? He's, and, and he kind of dictates that. He's like, what do you think you can do, one person, in all this madness? Hmm. We're all going to die here. And it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So it's like two completely different stories being told in two war movies that came out in the same year. The other thing is The Thin Red Line. I already talked about the significance of the title, but I also think it's got a lot of ambiguity to it. I wrote down this too in my notes. It's The Thin Red Line Between Human and Animal, right? How That's thin. It's a thin line. (laughs) Between us and yeah. uncivilized beasts, right? right? The one guy is pulling other dudes' teeth out. 
after he kills them. Or you know, he actually pulls them out of the one guy that's still alive. Yeah. He pulls his teeth out, right, Jeez. to save them as a souvenir. The thin red line between hero and coward. The thin line between life and death. Between sanity and madness. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, it, it's just... I don't know, man. It's I, I thought it was beautiful. I think it's a beautiful film. Now, this was the first time I ever saw it. So, I gotta um, say, I should give it another chance, but... I think you should. That was there's a couple, my there's, impression. There's a couple of lines I wrote down that I fucking love. But so, <laughs> Go for one it. Of them, one of them is, Wit asks Welsh. Jimmy Caviezel asks Sean Penn's character, don't you ever feel lonely? And he goes, only around people. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of it kind of dictates that we're all oh shit I hit my microphone I was getting so excited it, it kind of feeds into that we're all we're all meaningless it doesn't matter we're all gonna die you know what I mean mm. so so it feeds into that I, I only get lonely around other people yeah. right but my one of the funniest lines of the whole film when John Cusack's character is talking to Nick Nolte yeah it's after they finally take the hill right. And he's like, oh, I'm going to recommend you for an award and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, oh, this isn't the line, but one of the other funny lines is like, I'm not sure you'll get it, but I'm going to recommend it anyway. <laughs> like, so he's, he's telling him all this stuff. And, and John Cusack is like, you know, we got to get water yeah, up here. We need you know? water. That's we all he kept saying. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, they could die from it. And he's like, well, they could die from enemy fire. You know, like he's just going on and on. And then he goes, you're like a son to me, John. And then he looks at him and he goes, you know what my son does? He's a bait salesman. And there's like a moment of silence, like right after he says it. But what I love about that line, and I, I don't know how many people catch this. I thought about it immediately. What do you think he's doing that whole scene? He's a bait salesman in that scene. He's trying to sell John Cusack into this is why we're doing this. Yeah. This is all that matters. It doesn't matter if the men die from dehydration. It doesn't matter. As long as we take the hill, that's what we need. So to end it with a rather disparaging comment about his son being a bait salesman, right. that's what he's been doing for the last 10 minutes, selling bait. Yeah, I didn't catch That's a great observation. Um, you know? It was funny, though, because at the end of that scene, he... he Calls out to get them water. <laughs> Have yeah. some water brought up here. Yeah. yeah. Get, God damn it. Send people down to the river. And bring Dude, I love you, Nolte, in that movie. He's got Yeah. Well, and I liked, uh, I liked John Cusack's, uh, his part in that scene because he was just, uh, he was just kind of stone, you know, just like, yeah, we need water. And he just, yeah. yep, yep, that's great. We need water, but we need water. Yeah. <laughs> so, Finally just wore him down. <laughs> and, and as usual... The second half after the midpoint scene, which the midpoint scene, again, the false victory is where Ben Chaplin's character discovers how to take out the, the gun, the, mm. the, the, the hidden, the foxhole, right? Right, right. He, he's the one that gets up there, all the way up there, and he's like, shit, it's just three or four dudes. It's just three or four dudes inside there. We take them out, we got the hill, yeah. right? So false victory. Everything seems great. Well... <laughs> they find that there's still more shit that's going to hit the fan once they get up there. Yeah. And once they, even after they take it out, there's a lot of, as far as the story goes, on the second half of that, Staros gets fired, right? There's that real downer scene where Nick Nolte basically relieves him of his command. Another sad scene because he's just like, he's been the good guy this whole movie, you know? Right, and he's right. just like, I just don't like seeing my men die. Yeah. And he even challenges him. He challenges Nick Nolte. He goes, Have you ever had a soldier die in your arm, sir? 
You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I know, right? You know, and then and, and it's so and it's so degrading the way he's like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend you for the Purple Heart too. And he's like, why? And he goes, that scratch on your nose. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. god, yeah, like, it's like what the hell, man? There's been soldiers that have gotten their Purple Heart for losing limbs, and you're gonna give me one because I have a fucking scratch on my nose. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like just it's so insulting. And then of course we get into the the Bell Private Bell, who's Ben Chaplin's character gets the letter that his wife wants a divorce, right? She's been seeing an Air Force captain or something, you know? That is like after everything this guy has gone through. And the only thing that's kept him alive is those flashback thoughts of being with his wife again. Mm -hmm. And again, if you go back and watch that, one of the last visions he has or one of the last shots that Terrence Malick shows of the wife, you see the other man coming in the background. He's Mm. coming up the sidewalk towards her. And it's yeah. not him. It's not Ben Chaplin. So so right off the bat, you're like, this is before he gets the letter. So when you see that shot, you're like, who's that dude? You know? <laughs> and then like a scene or two later, he gets the letter and you're like, oh, she's going to leave him. Yeah, that's the For, worst. Oh, my God. That's I can't imagine being a soldier in battle and having that fear you're going to die any day now. And you get a, the only thing that's keeping you going is your wife back home. I feel like it's better just... Let him find out when he gets home. Oh, <laughs> it's dude, like it's so rough, man. So heartbreaking. <laughs> and then, of course, we get to the All is Lost, which is the river scene. That again, where everything thought they thought they had it right. They thought they had. They took the hill. They thought they had the island, but then the Japanese overpower them at the river, and Private Wit has to make that decision. I have to risk myself mm. for the platoon, right? I have to draw the Japanese away. Mm. And he and he and so and then we get of course to the full circle of his theme. Am I going to face death like my mother did with calm? And there's that great scene. It's a terrible scene, but it's a great scene the way it's shot, where he faces his death, mm. and all the Japanese are surrounding him with their guns out, yep. and he's just staring at them, and they're screaming at him, right? They're yelling at him in Japanese. He has no idea what they're saying, but he's just staring at them, and he's like, at this moment, he realizes this is it. This is it. Yep. Now, am I going to be taken captive? Am I going to fight and scream like a coward? Or am I just going to raise my gun and let them shoot me? I've done my part. I've pulled them away so that my platoon can get away. Yeah. And he did. He was successful. You know? And then there's that, you know, of course, the real sad scene where they, they bury him after that. And Welsh, Sean Penn's character, is the last one at the grave. Yeah. Right? And he says, where's your spark now? Like, mm-hmm. you, And he starts to break down. Yeah. You know, this is a private that he hated the whole movie, but they started to build that bond. Yeah. And then at the end, he has to bury him. And, well, so... and, and I think when, when he said that, where's your spark now? You know, I felt like in spite of his, the persona that, that he carried, Sean Penn's character, uh-huh. in spite of that, there was something about Caviezel's character that he, he, he wished he had. Absolutely, right. because yeah. what does he say throughout the whole movie? There's another world out there. And Sean, P, Sean Penn keeps telling him the whole movie, there's no other world but this one. Right. And in this one, a man is nothing. Yeah. We're going to die. And that's just what we do. And he's like, you're wrong. There's another world. And what was that other world he found? Was the village where nobody fought. Nobody, everybody loved each other. Everybody helped build forts, you know, the huts and everything. And they yep. lived in paradise. And then what happens? They start showing these shots in the second half of the film. The villagers are starting to fight each other. Yeah. They're starting to get in arguments. And he sees that and he's like, fuck, we are ruining paradise. 
<laughs> right? And yeah. again, we talked about it in the Minari Coast podcast about the destruction of paradise. Mm-hmm. That is happening here. Right. You know, that they did that to that island and those villagers who lived in peace for thousands of years. And then war comes in. It's not just us. You know, it's the Japanese, too. But it, war comes in and obliterates paradise. Because they just happen to be in the right place. And at the beginning of the film, when he's talking to that one village woman, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's the, the kids are all playful and smiling at him. Near the second half, when he gets back, when, when he sees them again, they're all afraid of him now. Yeah. And he can't go near them. They they kind of pull away when he goes near them. When he goes near them, and then he sees the other the adult villagers. That's where they're arguing with each other and fighting. Something they never did before. Right. So you could see the destruction yeah. of, of that paradise. I think it's a fantastic film. So, I love it. I guess it's so beautiful. The point is, war sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it, Chris. You nailed it. it. Took us six hours of movie watching, and you nailed the point. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I, I guess the point, again, when we talk about script structures, even in abstract journey films like this, you can still find the points. They're still there, right? Yeah. Theme and, and spiritual goals and turning points and midpoint scenes, they're all still there. All the points are still there. Yep. Even with somebody like Terrence Malick, who people consider to be such a whack job when he makes films... You know, there's a movie called Tree of Life, also with Sean Penn. People watch the movie and they're like, I have no idea what this movie's about. You know what I mean? Like, even an abstract filmmaker like that can still nail those points home. So if you haven't seen them, folks, All Quiet on the Western Front, 2022, and 1998's A Thin Red Line. We also mentioned, of course, Saving Private Ryan several times. If you haven't seen that, see that one, too. But uh, I think The Thin Red Line and All Quiet on the Western Front are more similar than people are willing to admit. It was a great pairing. And, and I will remind everyone the uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is a Netflix film, so you can stream it on Netflix yes. if you subscribe. And um, we had to rent uh, uh, Thin Red Line. I can't remember. I think we just rented it on Amazon or something. But, uh, I just had to go to my DVD collection, and there it was. <laughs> I got to get me a DVD player. I don't even have one in my house. My kids, well, we had my, an Xbox uh, for the longest time, but they all moved <laughs> out, so I don't even have an Xbox anymore. My my, Well, it's a Blu-ray player, but it plays DVDs, too. <laughs> but I remember back in 98, man, I was just graduating college at the time, and I remember the poster for The Thin Red Line. I loved it. If you, if you go into IMDb and look mm-hmm. up the film, I think the picture they show is the poster, and it's it's all the helmets. You you just see you just see a bunch of soldiers' helmets in the grass, and you see one eye, like you see one soldier looking up, like looking up from the helmet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a great. Uh, that was the whole poster. Yeah, that's a great. I love that shot. <laughs> and and look at all the names yeah, there, man. Read, a... read off those names. Read off those Sean names. Sean Penn, Adrian Brody, mm-hmm. Jim Caviezel, Ben Chaplin, 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 George Clooney, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson, Elias. Cotes, Elias Coteus. Oh, Elias Coteus. Sorry, I butchered that. That's Staros. That's Staros. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Nick Nolte, John C. Riley, John Travolta, and there's a lot more that you'd recognize that aren't even listed there. So another thing about Elias Coteus. So those of you who don't know who he is, you would know him if you were into '80s movies. He was in Some Kind of Wonderful. He was the uh, he was the guy that's always in detention. He was the the bat, the, like like the biker heavy metal rocker guy, uh, in, in that movie. He, he also played, played 
Yeah, he played you basically. Okay, so before we get to six degrees, yeah, I have so I have uh, uh, I wanted to mention. A I'm looking bit of forward to six degrees. I want to see how you pull this one off. So well, before we get to that, so we so a little bit of trivia on uh, Adrian Brody's character of Fife, Private Fife. Uh-huh. So Adrian Brody's an Academy Award winner. He won Best Actor in the movie The Pianist, a film by Roman Polanski. Right, right. Which is interesting if you go back at that, all those names you just read off, how many of them are Oscar winners. It's crazy. But anyway, so so Adrian Brody, the first cut of this film was five hours long. <laughs> and the studio was like, obviously you're out of your fucking mind because we cannot play this in theater. It won't make any money because we can only show like two airings in a day, right? Yeah. Two or three tops. You, you got you to gotta trim this down. Nobody's going to sit through five hours. So he trims it down to about three hours, right? Adrian Brody's character was supposed to be the lead. Oh, my gosh. Really? Fife. Fife. Private Fife was supposed to be the lead. He knew none of this about it being cut down. He takes his family on opening night on the red carpet to the <laughs> oh, premiere no. of the Thin Red Line to say, I'm the lead in this war movie. And it's his big break. It's oh, his big break. Oh, man. He goes in there, they sit out, he's in all of four scenes. <laughs> and he barely has any speaking parts. Yeah. That's he's got rough. Almost, he's got barely any speaking parts. And he walked out of there completely blindsided. Uh, he said he felt embarrassed. He had to tell his family. He's like, I had no idea. All my shit was cut. In addition to him, his a lot of his scenes being cut. Mickey Rourke is in the film too. Yeah. Bill Pullman is in the film, and their their scenes are all cut. Wow. Now I heard that there's a special edition Blu-ray where a scene with Mickey Rourke in it is is, is in the deleted scene. So okay. I want to buy that so yeah. I can watch it. I want to watch that. I would love to find if there is the five-hour version out there somewhere. I want to buy that and watch that too. Right. But yeah, so it turns out that Jim Caviezel ended up being the lead. Yeah. And he later said that that's the film that launched his career. Sure, yeah. Because after that, he did that movie Frequency. Uh, remember that movie? Yeah, where well, he... that's a great movie. That's yeah. a time travel movie. I love yeah. that movie. Yeah, well, kind of time travel. It's through a ham radio. That yeah, time but he's yeah. talking to his dad who died twenty yeah. years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I love yeah. it. I thought and it was a course, great film. And then of course, after that was Passion. So I mean, he credits the Thin Red Line for launching his career. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't know. I loved it. So when you texted me that you were that you were such you were so down on this film, I was like, I'm gonna reach through this phone and strangle him. Well, I, I had already I had already seen I had already seen All Quiet on the Western Front. When I saw a Thin Red Line, I was like, oh, man, I I knew how much I loved All Quiet on the Western Front, you know. And then when I saw a Thin Red Line, I was like. God, this is well, slow, and then what the I, scene. Oh no, it's artsy. Oh, fuck. Okay, one second, one second. I know we don't have much time left, but I got to do this. Okay, so uh, because if I keep going on this proper twelve, then it will. Be, it'll be more than just Conor McGregor kicking my ass. So, but what I love is that Scorsese named it his second favorite film of the '90s. I think his first one was The Bicycle Thief, which I believe is a foreign film. But anyway, I haven't seen it. But that. He, for him naming this as his second favorite film in the 90s is very telling because Scorsese loves movies that draw out emotions simply by their shots. Um, and again, like I said, this is one of those films like All Quiet on the Western Front that are very, ab- they're like abstract paintings. They're just artistically beautiful to watch, mm-hmm. right? And and even though they come with 
such a downer of war. There's so much beauty in the human spirit. Sure. Yeah. And I think both of these films really show that. And a special shout out again to the the actor that played Private Bomber for his first role ever. My God, yeah, man, did he nail it? He nailed it big time. Yeah, even without dialogue. And like I said, I watched it in German both times. We started out watching it with the English dubbed in, and my boys asked me to change it, so we did. And I, I just loved it. And so I did rewatching it in German. I was I paused a couple of times and jumped back to see what he actually said because visually you just get caught up in the film. Yeah. You know. And so I wasn't even I, I forgot to read. You know, because I was just caught up in the <laughs> film, and I had to go back a couple of times rewatching it, saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." You know, reading reading the subtitles. But yeah, just the the visual like the. I don't know what it is. I mean, just the he captures the horror of war right on his face, you know, yeah. and it's just brilliant. So well, and again, to to that point on Jim Caviezel, he is very very similar. Where that was one of his first big roles, and how I mean, you see so many times in that film, he looks like he's about to cry, right? Like yeah. he's 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 got that thing that he does with his mouth, you know, where like you're getting choked up but you want to hide it. He does that several times in the movie, and you can kind of see his eyes getting a little glossy, but he fights it because he's got to be tough guy, right? He's got to show that it doesn't bother him. That Because he, he even says to Sean Penn, there's nothing you can do to me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm twice the man you are, he tells him in the beginning of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, So he's got this, I got to be tough in front of Welsh, who's his superior officer, but he has that emotion on his face. Yeah. And I can see why it launched his career because Jim Caviezel's got one of those faces that carries emotion. My God, if we just did a movie, we, we could do a podcast on passion. Yeah. I mean, he is so amazing in that movie. That was, I mean, I cried. I saw passion. It, it, it opened not on a Friday. I don't know if you remember. The year it came out, it opened on Ash Wednesday. Yeah. And I saw it after I got my ashes, and I I cried in the theater, dude. Like he yeah. was so amazing. Yeah, we saw uh, it in the theater too, and that that's another movie you watch it in a foreign language, you know, on yes. the big on the yep. big screen. They didn't even have it dubbed. Yeah, um, I don't know if they have it dubbed now on the on DVD. I don't think so. I or think you, you just, and, at best at best it's subtitled. And what was wild about that one is like Mel Gibson. He basically had to get the actors to learn an extinct language. Yeah. Because Aramaic is not used. It's a dead language. Yeah. It's a dead language. And so it was wild to to see that. So, and you had had Aramaic, you had Hebrew, and you had Greek being spoken as the only dialogue in the film, you know? And and it worked. I mean, it was all subtitles, you know? Yeah. But yeah, that was another one that I I just loved. Another movie. little funny subplot on that one. Monica uh, Bellucci, who plays, I think, uh, his mother Mary, right? Mm. Uh, no, she plays Mary Magdalene. Oh, okay. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah. Um, Mel Gibson said in an interview one time, he's like, we had the darndest time trying to make her ugly. We couldn't do it because she's so beautiful. He's like, we put mud on her face. We covered her in these rags. He's like, she looked beautiful in every scene. He's like, we tried to make her look not so beautiful, and it didn't work at all yeah. because her beauty is just comes right through. Yeah. So a little funny plot there. But anyway, all right, so you have a six degrees for yeah, me. Yeah, so let me hold on. Let me pull it up. You made so. one crucial in – your, in your attempt – 
to finally I know, win. I know how you did it. You, st- I you didn't picked- do it myself, but I, I. So let me just read it, okay? Uh, uh, let me guess. All right, all right, all right. You, you tell me where you went wrong. First of all, tell what are the actors? Felix, how do you pronounce his last name? Camerer. I, I don't know, dude. Like I said, first time, first time he's ever Felix been in a movie. He plays Camerer. He plays Paul Bomber. I think it's yeah, ca- Camerer. Yeah, he's ca- the lead Camerer. in All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. And Will Wallace, who's in a Thin Red Line. I don't yes, even he, barely remember him because he. Yeah, he he plays he was Private Hope. Far down the cast list. Well, with that cast on list, IMD, who wouldn't be? Yeah, and I who wouldn't be far so down? When I was like looking at the cast list, thinking six degrees. Oh my God, who am I gonna pick? These are all A-list actors, and I'm like, come on, this sucks. So I start scrolling, scrolling, <laughs> scrolling, scrolling on IMDb. Will Wallace. I don't know this guy. <laughs> what was he in? Oh, these movies sucked. Okay, cool. And but there is one movie that he was in that you probably used. Am well, I no, right? he's. A- he was actually in a few movies. That's not that wasn't the problem. What happened was you you said and generally we don't we don't use the movies that we're talking about. Yes, true. But so, but we had to We had to with this one because All Quiet Felix on the Western Front is, is the, the only, only movie, he, movie was he was ever in, so you had to use that one for this one. But he but you know who was in that film who played Erzberger was Daniel Bruhl. He played the the government politician guy that was trying to end the war. He's been in a lot of shit. Uh, he was in Marvel movies. He's been in all the Captain America Civil uh, War movie. He was in a lot. He's been, so, and he was one of the main soldiers in Inglorious Bastards with Brad Pitt, uh, who yeah, was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Dakota Fanning, who was in I Am Sam, not just with uh, Sean Penn, but Will Wallace. Yeah, with Will Wallace. I knew you were going to use I Am Sam, because that's the only other film that guy's been in. Oh, no, he's been in several others. Has he? Was he? he? Well, when I finally got to his IMDb and started looking, I'm like, he has been in a bunch of shitty movies. Oh, wait, I Am Sam, which I still think was a shitty movie, but at least there were some big names in it. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Penn, to name it yeah, too. Sean Penn but, went but full also, but, but, Oh, stop, stop. You're not going to do the Tropic Thunder line. You know what's funny? Since we always go off on tangents, Robert Downey Jr. So was in an wrong. interview saying, so you know, the the heat he thought he was going to take for going blackface in that movie. Yes. He said, nobody even cared. They were so pissed off about Simple Jack, right? The, that, that, uh, the, that, oh, fuck, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller's uh, movie, Simple Jack, where he plays a, a you know, a mentally handicapped individual yeah. and he overdoes it and then there's this scene where he tells him you never go full retard and then, so they gave more heat about simple jack than they did about robert downey jr going blackface did the, you mean about saying the, the r word is that what they gave him crap well, about that and just ben stiller <laughs> exaggerating that performance of simple did jack you love, did you love that what was it an instagram reel or something i sent when it was the it was all the Superheroes from the, the Avengers, Avengers scene. the Avengers yeah. scene where they're watching Tropic Thunder on the big screen. So, so and for all anyone that doesn't Robert know, Downey Jr. <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know, there's a scene in the Avengers. Is it is it Endgame? 
don't remember no. which one it was. Oh no, it's the one. Yeah, it might be Endgame. It was. It was. It was where all the Avengers are sitting around the table, and and William Hurt's character is showing them live footage of all the destruction they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and they're all like feeling bad, like on. They're all looking they're at each other, like, like, "Wow, everyone wide eyed, going, oh yeah, shit. like wide eyed, like man, everyone hates us." <laughs> and then the clip that my brother sent me was that scene, but on the picture was Tropic Thunder, and it was Robert Downey Jr. in in blackface, and he's going to oh, I was down in San Antonio, but I, I can make you some Creole, you know, and he's doing this whole thing, and they're all looking at each other, and then there's a shot of Captain America looking at Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, giving him, like, the shit eye, like, what the... What the? What's wrong with you? Oh, and I think so, the thing at the top said when the Avengers had to start doing background checks. Yeah, you and you know what? You should include that in the notes in the in the in the podcast notes, and people could still look that up on YouTube because oh, that shit. that is so great. It's so funny. It's just perfect. Yeah, it was good. Well, well done on your on your six degrees. I didn't uh, I didn't see that coming, but then well, again, Daniel I didn't Brule, do. A, if you right. really want to IMDB somebody, look at Daniel Brule. That dude's been in a lot of shit. Yeah. And the fact that he was in All Quiet on the Western Front is what saved me. Because there were several actors. This was their only movie. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, well, it, not that there was their only movie. Everything else they did was in Germany. Like, yeah, really, exactly. no U.S. films. And I'm like, I'm fucked. I can't find anybody. <laughs> and then I saw Daniel Brule's name, and I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. He played the politician. Yeah. And I knew him from all the Avengers movies, and like, he's been in a lot of shit. So. I, I thought I had you this time, man. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad it worked out, but it just proves your point. You, you believe you can connect any two actors in okay, six degrees. Okay, so before we sound off... Will you acknowledge and admit you need to watch The Thin Red Line again after now that we've talked about it, look at it from a different point of view, yeah, and don't be I, such a stick in the mud? <laughs> I'll definitely watch it again. I'll definitely watch it again. And, and like, I said, that- like I said, there were some individual scenes that I just loved, and I think it's it's worth it just to get to those scenes again. So Watch the Nick Nolte Cusack scene again where he says, my son's a bait salesman. It's so <laughs> great. It's just him nailing that point. And then they stare at each other for yeah. a minute with no Awkward words. Awkward pause. <laughs> my son's a bait salesman. And that's pretty much what I've been doing for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> right. Wow. So it's great. Anyway, that was good stuff. Well, that's where we landed the plane on this one. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a new website, which is silverscreenhappyhour.com. And you can email us at cheers at silverscreenhappyhour.com. You can also find that in the show notes. You may have noticed the last episode to post before this one was our listener feedback and response episode. And we're going to do that from time to time. If you'd like to send us an email or a voice memo on Instagram, we might respond as a little bonus episode like that one. Well, as I sign off, I just want to encourage you to go support your local cinema and watch some movies. So until next time, for my brother Jerome, I'm Chris Wiegand. <laughs>